Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us again as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you for all the feedback we've received lately since we came back from our break. We've had lots of people telling us how excited they are that we're back and we're very excited to be back as well. My, one man I know is particularly excited to be back is my co-host Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. I'm excited to be back. It's uh, yeah, good to be doing these uh, these podcasts again. And there's some light at the end of the tunnel, Pete, when it comes to actually walking the battlefields. We're starting to see a little bit of action. As we discussed last week, if you are a resident of the UK, you can now tour the battlefields with Pete Smith by going to our website at battlewalks.co.uk. So check that out if you're in the UK and want to visit the battlefields of France and Belgium. But also for Australians, there seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel. There's some suggestions that possibly... Late this year or early next year, we could see Travel to Europe return, which would be so exciting. I absolutely can't wait. And Pete, it's for two years now, it's been our key topic of conversation. Pretty exciting, the thought that we can get back to the battlefields and lead people around. I can't wait. Um, Americans are coming as well, uh, and Canadians. So uh, people are starting starting to travel. And one of the very obvious things here, living in the little village that I do, is uh, we're right on a, an aircraft hub above us. And for almost two years, it's been really quiet in the skies, almost nothing flying. And now uh, when you're in the garden, you're looking up, there are uh, vapor trails everywhere. So the planes are back. It's exciting. So watch this space. We will. Uh, we're starting to roll out our plans for touring uh, straight away. So very soon on our website in Australia, which is battlefields.com.au, we will be posting information about tours. Some of them are up there already, but we'll be expanding that as we go on, as we get a bit more clarity about when we can return to the battlefields. Very, very exciting. But but don't worry, We even when we're walking the battlefields and touring has resumed, we'll still be doing this podcast because we've loved doing it. It was, a, it was an excuse during COVID for us to, to still keep some connection with the battlefields. But it's been so popular and gone so well, we'll, we'll continue to do it even when touring resume. So just exciting times all around. On the subject of the podcast, if you're enjoying it, don't forget, you can support the podcast now at buymeacoffee.com. So if you go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks, you can make a contribution there to help the podcast. And uh, that's always much appreciated. So thank you to the to the people who already have done that for us, who've already bought us a coffee. And uh, if you like what you hear, then feel free to go to buy me a coffee and do the same thing. Our podcast today an interesting one. This is a, a, a bit of an Australian focus, but I think all of our international listeners will enjoy this as well. This is the battlefield of Montbrahan. And Pete, Montbrahan, not a well-known name, not a name like Pozier or Bullecourt that leaps to mind when you think of the Australians on the Western Front, but an important action nonetheless. 
It is indeed, and I have to say, not very often visited. Uh, we, uh, I very rarely take people up there. It's not on any of our kind of scheduled routes, uh, but it's a, a fantastic place to uh, to go to, and I always try and make uh, a gap for it to get there if I can. Uh, it's part of the hundred days, so it's getting towards the uh, the end of the Australian experience. This is their very last battle. Um, they will continue fighting piecemeal after that, but this is the last Australian battle of the Great War. So it's an important action. And a very successful one, but sadly with some fairly high casualties. Surprisingly early uh, in the the scheme of the end of the war, because this took place on the 5th of October 1918, and of course the war didn't end until November 11, and many infantry units were fighting right up to the last minutes of the war until the armistice was called. So a little bit unusual that the Australians were out of the line, but that was simply because they'd been fighting so hard since the summer, wasn't it? Well, the Australian Corps needed relieving, and it, in fact, it had been promised that it was going to be relieved, it was going to be taken out the line. Now, this wasn't the end of the war for them. It's just that they needed to be reorganised, to be refitted, they needed reinforcements, and those reinforcements sadly weren't coming. So it was almost certainly, and did mean, uh, disbandments of battalions. So it was uh, it was going to be a fairly traumatic time, but they needed the rest. They needed to come out of the line. Now, unfortunately, the people that were relieving them were the Americans, and it was the 2nd American Corps, and they were a daily late in arriving so basically Monash said well rather than kick your heels here and I think it was partly Rawlinson it was a suggestion by him rather than kick your heels you've got to wait for the Americans so let's have one more push let's go for this village let's capture this village uh, and then you can uh, you can be taken out of the line. It's quite a controversial one we'll talk about that more as the battle goes on but as you say the Australians weren't even supposed to be in the line they were supposed to be in the rear area the village itself is in no way strategically important. It was just uh, on, a, on a plateau, like so many of these French villages up on a little plateau, just with a little bulge in the German line, and the Australians decided to pinch it out, one little attack. And, and by, this, by, the, by this, you know, the, the size of the Western Front, this was a small action, a very small action. Um, but still, to the men involved, we, we've said many times on this podcast, Pete, that the most important battle a man is ever involved in is the, you know, the most important battle of a man's war is the ones he, he's involved in. So for the blokes that had to face the guns at Montbrahan, it would have been a, it would have been difficult to shake off the cold in the morning and, and launch one last attack, wouldn't it? Well, it's interesting, as I always do just before we do these podcasts, I have a quick whiz through my uh, my books and things and have a quick uh, look at some of the records and some of the comments. And the overall feeling you get is that these guys were very keen to go ahead, and I found that quite extraordinary. Here we are on on the cusp of uh, of being being relieved, uh, and yet they seem to be very game to get stuck in. Now it may be just because they knew this was the last action, get stuck in, finished, and, and we're off out of the line. Interestingly, for quite a few of the guys, as I say, the casualty rates are going to be fairly high. But a lot of the guys w- would have actually gone home after this this, act- this action because there was a promise that they would start looking at the Gallipoli men and Gallipoli men who'd been in since Gallipoli and, and got all this way and had not had any home leave whatsoever would be sent home for arrest, not just sent behind the lines. So there was a lot of things going on at the time and, and you have to say a lot of men are not going to get that rest uh, ever, sadly, because they're not going to get through the, the, the single day. And this is a single day battle, so it's just one day over, out the line, finished. It's interesting you mentioned Gallipoli veterans and there were a surprising number of Gallipoli veterans in this attack because the attack was was uh, was taking place, the, the second division um, launched the attack and uh, two battalions from that, the 21st and the 24th, both of which had served at Gallipoli. They hadn't landed on the first day at Gallipoli but they'd arrived just before the August offensive in, at Gallipoli and there's a surprising number of Gallipoli veterans in amongst that mix and not a huge number but but enough that were in there to to mean that um, this was a, a pretty important attack and I was looking at some figures about this when I was doing the research absolutely extraordinary so we've discussed this before but a full battalion during the first world war about a thousand men give or take and obviously those numbers were were reduced as men went into action and were killed and wounded and went away sick so it was generally considered about 600 men in a battalion was the bare minimum to launch an attack at Montbrahan between the 21st and the 24th, between both battalions, they could only muster 500 men. Just extraordinary 
how depleted the Australians were by this stage. It's just a result of just fighting and fighting and fighting since July. I think I think it is extraordinary because they're still being tasked with a battalion attacks. So it's as if they're at full strength. And when we say you know, 500 men between the two, well, not all those men would attack either because so, you're going to keep at least 50 back as a, re- as a reserve, as the nucleus. Uh, uh, so they're not all going to go. So it's going to be even less than that of the men that are attacking. And of course, they are going to be supported by the second pioneer Battalion. Now, perhaps we need to talk a little bit about pioneer battalions. What does a pioneer battalion do? Well, firstly, they are trained as infantry, but their main job, their main role, uh, was to to be the divisional labour force. So they will be digging roads, preparing uh, defensive positions. Uh, digging trenches occasionally but generally speaking they're laboring but the thing they can do is if they come under fire if they come under attack they can pick up their rifles and fight but this is going to be the very first time that a pioneer an australian pioneer battalion was asked to actually attack so not just to do some road work and then pick up your rifles and do a bit of defending or a bit of uh, uh, whatever a bit of patrolling perhaps this is they are going to be asked to uh, attack in support of the 21st and the 24th battalion so i know uh, extraordinary but of course what it is is a pioneer battalion had more men left there were more men still around in a pioneer battalion because they've not been totally in the front line under fire and advancing uh, for this hundred days of which of course the uh, the 24th and uh, 24th and the 21st battalions uh, have you were right about the high spirits pete i was uh, i just came across in my notes uh, something that i thought was quite extraordinary the 24th b company of the 24th uh, came up with this little ditty the night before the attack, a good a good amount of uh, friendly rivalry within the battalion. A takes the right flank, D takes the left flank, but we'll be in Montbrahan before you. So B Company was obviously determined to... Uh, what is it about B Company? Have you heard anything about B Company? They always seem to be the, the most uh, the most outspoken of any, any battalion is always B Company. But B Company were obviously determined to be in Montbrahan first. So quite an extraordinary situation. So that's the... That's the setup, the depleted Australians, incredibly skilled fighters by this stage, simply because they were all experienced, because they effectively run out of reinforcements. Very skilled fighters, but exhausted. And this was the last action they'd participate in during the, the Great War. Just extraordinary. I think what's also uh, very sad, and you've already touched upon it, is that a lot of the men that are leading from the front, literally leading from the front here, are those Gallipoli men. Uh, they're the ones that have been promoted to the uh, senior NCOs, to the junior officers, uh, to the, uh, the captains even. These are the guys that are going to be leading from, from the front. Many of them very proudly wearing their colour patches with the brass A, uh, brass A emblazoned on them, um, uh, denoting that they had served on the Gallipoli Peninsula and uh, because they are leading from the front then they take a terrible toll uh, in this battle. We should mention two of them that we're going to follow in uh, in detail as we go through this attack and that's um, Austin Marnie, uh, both captains, Austin Marnie and Harry Fletcher who were two mates in the 24th Battalion. Both Here they were both leading companies of the 24th. Uh, both had won, uh, been awarded the Military Cross, both had served at Gallipoli They'd enlisted together as privates from Victoria and had served throughout the Great War. Now they were captains, both holding a military cross and both commanding battalions. It just shows that if you manage to survive during the Great War, the 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 the, the great achievements that you could you could accomplish uh, in this in this hellish fighting. But but still very good mates, both commanding companies of the twenty fourth battalion. And interestingly, the thing that prompted me to do this podcast this week was that uh, I was contacted by uh, members of Marnie's family. Uh, and uh, both uh, several members of his family contacted me over the last couple of weeks to just tell me a little bit more about his story. They'd heard a podcast I'd done a couple of years ago about Montbrahan, and they were uh, they were keen to to just tell me more here about his story. So, if you're listening, the Marnie family, thank you very much for for contacting me. It's always great to hear from family members. Interestingly, both men uh, are usually listed as being called John. Their first name was John. Both Fletcher and Marnie, their their first name was John. Um, and that is what I've se- where I've seen them referred to everywhere. And uh, there's a couple of things. When I was doing my book, Walking with the Anzacs, a decade ago now, more than that, nearly 15 years ago now, Montbrahan was a special one for me because not a lot of research had been done on Montbrahan. It, it was one of those peripheral battles that most people hadn't spent much time worrying about. And so I really felt that I was covering a lot of new ground with Montbrahan, which I couldn't do in the book in places like Pozier or Bullecourt or Passchendaele. And so I was really, I was really quite proud of the fact that I uncovered several new things about Montbrahan in that book, and we're going to discuss some of those as we go on the walk. But one of the things I found was going through the newspapers, I discovered that uh, ten or twenty years after the battle, one of their mates 
had put in a, um, a notice just, just remembering them on the anniversary of the battle. Uh, and he'd referred to them uh, both by their second name. Uh, so Harry Fletcher and Austin Marnie, he called them. So even though they, their first name was John, um, they uh, they did that thing that was so common back in this era and uh, they, they went by their second name. So, yeah, so they were known to the men that, that demonstrated they were known to the men in their, uh, in their unit as, uh, as, as Austin Marnie and, and Harry Fletcher. So just those, those small little bits of history that are easy to, uh, easy to overlook. I'm just going to have another little snippet here, and that when they both joined up, they literally were standing side by side in the queue. I know they, we, we, you mentioned that they joined together, where they literally joined together because one has the number one zero five six and one has the number one zero five seven. So they literally were in the queue side by side as they as they enlisted. Well, we're going to tell their stories we go along because it's one of the great uh, parts of the Montbrahan tale, and. Um Let's, uh, let's begin the walk, Pete. We're going to start the walk in the town. So we should point out where this town is. So as we say, not often visited on the battlefields because it's so far to the east. Because what you must remember about this stage of the war is that the, the Allied advance was working very, very well. The Germans were falling back every day. And basically, the, the entire Allied line, I mean, we'll talk specifically about the Australians, but basically they would be tasked with attacking a village. They'd attack it. They'd capture it from the Germans. They'd bury their dead in the local cemetery. And they'd push on to the next one. And this was just happening day in, day out. Sometimes they were capturing two villages in a day. And so the, the rate of advance was extraordinary at this stage of the war. So what that means for the modern battlefield visitor is this is a long way to the east. This is well east of the Somme and the regions that we would normally visit. And sadly, too far away for most people to go and visit. It, um, and it feels back to uh, almost, well, not back. It feels a little bit like a, a Second World War battlefield because this is movement again. It's tanks, it's infantry, it's artillery. It's no trenches. And even the Germans are not fighting from trenches. They're, they're fighting from di- ditches and cellars and woods and, and quarries. But these are not pre-prepared trenches. This is open warfare again, a warfare of, of movement, something that we're all having to relearn. And the important thing about that when you visit the the town today is unlike towns on the Somme or up in the Ypres salient, the town was not extensively damaged because this was the only, the, the, the few hours of this battle was the only time during the war when there was fighting in this village. And so sure, a few shell blasts would have put some holes in walls and machine guns would have, would have spattered the walls. Uh, but the town was not extensively damaged in this fighting. We don't see these huge artillery bombardments like we saw in the Battle of the Somme. And the, the fighting was, was pretty much small arms, man to man, moving pretty quickly through the town. So the, even though there was some damage to the buildings in most cases, the, the town you see there is original, uh, That the uh, as the Australians would have seen it. Really quite extraordinary. And that actually makes it interesting because if you are a rummager of anything that's left from the Great War, as I am, then you can have a good wander about and you do find bullet holes round windows and fragments of uh, where a shell has hit a wall and it's been patched up, uh, which you don't find. Uh, as Matt said, you don't find here. It's all gone. It's all been completely flattened. But there, you actually do, you can see part of the battlefield. It's still it's still there within the, held in the houses uh, and the buildings in the village. And towards the end of the walk, there'll be a bit of a reveal about some of the buildings that, uh, that tell a really interesting story. But uh, that will come later on in the walk. So why don't we begin, Pete? We're going to begin at the town hall in the, in the, in the town. So uh, is, there, is there anything uh, to see related to the battle uh, at the town hall? Well, if you'd asked me that uh, uh, just before the centenary, I'd have said, no, there's nothing. But uh, there is now. There was a plaque that was unveiled uh, during the centenary commemorations of the fighting. I actually uh, was there with a, a small group. And uh, a plaque had been donated by the Victoria Police uh, Blue Ribbon Foundation. And it lists the, the three battalions that took place. And, uh, and amazingly, it lists all of the soldiers who were killed on that day, the day of the fighting. Perhaps we, should, we ought to mention the date, actually, the 5th of October 1918. This is the actual date that we're looking at uh, when the fighting took place. And it was a, just, a, again, I always like to get this uh, out of the way because it's, it helps you, your imagination. This is a, 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 a dark attack. This started off, off in absolute pitch blackness at, uh, I think it was 6.05, if I remember rightly, around about there anyway, uh, in the morning. So a pitch black and, of course, uh, slowly uh, coming to daylight. So by the time they're getting into the edge of the village and fighting their way into the village, then then dawn would be breaking. So, sorry, I'm going to go off on, I'm ringing the little bell, I'll go off on one of my little tangents. It's something, you just mentioned that, it's something that I think is a little bit, uh, in my study of the Great War, it's something that I think is a little bit overlooked. We talk about significant tactical changes that, that made attacks more effective, and we talk about things like a better use of machine guns or the creeping barrage 
these things that, that, that made infantry attacks more effective, the introduction of tanks, the dropping of ammunition from aircraft. So we talk about all of these things that did advance the technology of the war. But I've got to say, one of the things that I think is the greatest the greatest innovation, something that they really took a hold of, particularly by 1918, that gets completely overlooked, was the timing of the attacks. That They really refined this idea of attacking in the dark before dawn so that the attacker had the advantage of capturing the ground while it was dark, but by the time they were consolidating, the sun had come up, so any counterattacks by the enemy had to be launched in daylight. Yep. That is a very simple but an incredibly effective method of attacking. And by 1918, just about every attack that was going on was a pre-dawn attack, taking a couple of hours, and the men would be digging in as the sun came up, giving them beautiful daylight to mow down any Germans that tried to take the position back. Um, that's exactly what they're aiming to do. But what's interesting, book after book that I've read over the years, which discusses in great detail attack, doesn't mention that it's taking place in the dark. It's something that we somehow just take for granted. And your mental image is that it's in daylight. I don't know why we do that. Well, I suppose we do that because we are generally looking at the battlefield in the daylight. So you're imagining that everything is is being done in the daylight. But uh, no, this was a, a, a at least pitch black when it started and half light uh, about the time that the heavy fighting is taking place in the uh, in the village itself it's a huge departure from the early attacks if we look at things like lone pine at gallipoli going in at five o'clock in the afternoon we look at you know the uh, the the evening attack that was from l uh, we look at the bright sunny morning of the first day of the somme there, there was a feeling that the men were not capable of attacking in the dark early in the war and so they gave the advantage to the enemy by putting by putting the blokes in in bright daylight but um yeah so just an interesting little side point there but uh, one of the great innovations so yes this attack did take place in the dark i don't recommend when you get to the ground that you tour it in the dark that is a little <laughs> difficult uh daylight i think is better for uh, actually doing the tour but uh, it's it's a really great spot. So we're at the town hall, uh, that new plaque, which I have not seen myself. I look forward to checking out next time I'm over there. And then we're heading out of the town, up into the northern part of the town, to Calvair Cemetery, just following a couple of little streets. And we're heading up to Calvair Cemetery. And like many places in France, very religious, Calvair means cross, uh, and there was a cross uh, by the side of the road, a religious cross, and near to there they built a cemetery uh, to bury many of the men who were killed in this fighting. I think almost certainly, uh, because it's uh, almost alongside the civil cemetery, which is is also in the area, I suspect it probably initially started off as a German cemetery. Or if not, I'm fairly certain there would have been a German cemetery close by. It's just the place where the Germans would have buried their dead. And of course, we then bury our dead in the same area. But later on, uh, normally after the war, we centralise the Germans so they disappear. Now, I don't know for certain if actually uh, Calvert Cemetery um, actually had Germans uh, within it but it certainly doesn't now it's uh, so I'll just give you the, the rundown as I always do on the numbers there uh, 71 graves so it's a very small cemetery 16 of those are unidentified and 48 uh, of the graves are of Australian soldiers and 37 of those 48 were actually killed uh, during the capture of the town it's an interesting little cemetery and it typifies what I mentioned before that the the Basically, the, the men would sweep through a village, capture it from the Germans, and then bury their dead in the local cemetery. This is a, a great example of that. There's a few interesting graves in this cemetery. It's in the section of the town that was captured by uh, the uh, the 24th Battalion, D Company of the 24th Battalion, and their commanding officer was the man we mentioned earlier, Harry Fletcher. And Harry Fletcher lies in this cemetery, unfortunately. So we're, we're sort of getting to the end of the story early on with this visit. Harry Fletcher was killed very early in the battle. So this man, just reminding you, enlisted with his friend Austin Mahoney, served together, landed as privates at Gallipoli, fought all the way through, military cross, and eventually a captain commanding a company in the 24th Battalion. Interesting that they both stayed in the 24th Battalion, Pete, because men, when they were promoted to officers, were often shifted around between battalions. But these, these men were fortunate to stay in the 24th. This was ground that his company captured. But very early in the attack, in the attack there were a few tanks, not many, but a couple of tanks, participated in this attack and very early on uh, Fletcher was was directing a tank and, and trying to point out where to go and the Germans opened fire with a field gun on the tank attempting to knock it out and one of the shells na- landed nearby and, uh, and killed a couple of men including including Harry Fletcher so that after you know a hero of Gallipoli military cross winner and all this wonderful achievement during the war on the last day of fighting Harry Fletcher lost his life next to that tank at Mont Brahan 
and he's buried here at Calvair Cemetery. Just a, a, a just a sad story all around, Pete. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible story, and uh, you know, if you, if you are one of those that believes this attack uh, shouldn't have taken place, no, I don't. I think it was necessary, as every attack is is necessary, and it's just unfortunate that it fell upon these battalions uh, to be there. But somebody had to be the last battalions, I suppose, uh, attacking from an Australian perspective. But it, it is very sad the number of Gallipoli men that that actually died during this uh, during this fighting, and he's a prime example of a man out front uh, trying to do his job which is guide a tank onto the machine guns that are holding his men up because his men will be held around that cemetery for quite some time by German machine guns and he was attempting to get them out of that uh, rather rather tricky uh, uh, situation. Uh, so very sad and it's one of the, the, the more interesting aspects of tanks is that tanks can be a great aid to infantry but they also can be amazingly problematic because they draw fire and infantrymen that tend to get behind a tank to try and seek some protection actually don't gain a massive amount of protection if it's under fairly sustained uh, uh, shell fire by these are 77 millimeters the front line uh, uh, infantry support uh, artillery piece for the germans and so yeah tanks are uh, are helpful or can be a, a hindrance and in this case there were actually 12 tanks that were operating in the village but a lot of them were late now i'm not going to blame the tank corps it's always very difficult for them to get tanks into position at the right time but uh, 12 tanks operating but uh, 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 only a few actually did what i would uh, describe as a as a, a useful role uh, but uh, 12 of them here during the fighting. We're releasing fairly soon some bonus episodes for subscribers where we're going to talk about specific aspects of the Great War and one of those we will definitely do is the role of tanks because it's so important and so misunderstood. So we'll do a whole episode dedicated to tanks for subscribers. That'll be coming up very, very soon. But just on that point, Pete, about the, the, the what we've been discussing, the men that served for so long in this unit, just a quick scan of... Some of the men buried in Calvair Cemetery just reveals how long these men had been fighting and how much they'd achieved. They'd just been through so much because a cemetery that's only got 70-odd graves in it, you'd expect hardly any prominent burials there. Simply the, the, the maths simply precludes many of those men having been prominent. But if you, if you have a look at this, so buried in this cemetery is Sergeant Reginald Davies, who won the, the DCM, the Distinguished Conduct Medal, which is one step below the Victoria Cross for enlisted men. Uh, he also won the French Medal Militaire. He was in the 17th Battalion, so he wasn't killed in, in this attack, but he was killed soon after, oh, so just before this attack. Then you have Corporal Ernest Ford, who also won the DCM. So two DCM men in the cemetery. We've got Sergeant Eric Reed, who won the Military Medal and the French Croix de Guerre from the 2nd Pioneers. Interesting, he was a pioneer, but he won both of those awards. Uh, and also a, a bloke I'm particularly interested in is John Blankenberg Military Medal. Um, who was, uh, I think I think his family had emigrated from Russia originally to Australia. Uh, but uh, he'd won the military medal earlier in 1918. He didn't win at Mont Brahan. But the thing I love about Blankenberg is he, he was beside his platoon commander and they were both pushing through a hedge as they advanced through the village. And his platoon commander actually bashed his helmet on the muzzle of a German machine gun that was hidden in the hedge and waiting to open fire on the Australians. So Blankenberg charged through the, charged through the hedge and found this group of Germans around their machine gun ready to open fire. Uh, but because they hadn't opened fire, he decided to take them all on and he killed them all because he called them cowards because they didn't fight harder. So pretty savage bloke. And uh, he was killed later in the day and is buried in Calvair Cemetery. So just, again, it's what I love about Montbrahan is just incredible stories. You, you don't often get this in small actions. You don't get these incredible personal stories, but Montbrahan is just rife with them. Amazing stories of individuals who did amazing things. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's very noticeable when you enter the cemetery and you start looking along the lines of graves that you see all of these awards. They're very visible. You can see MM, DCM, uh, DSO, etc., etc. And you and you realise that by the time, if you'd survived and got to this part of the war, then there was a likelihood that you would have been awarded some kind of bravery award. And you can see it in all of the cemeteries. It's not just this cemetery. When you look at the cemeteries in this area, you see many, many more bravery awards than you'd expect to see in, let's say, a cemetery on the, on the Somme battlefield. Anything uh, else you want to add about Calvary Cemetery, Pete? Any other additional interesting graves? No. <laughs> I can't think of anything of the top. Am I missing something? <laughs> no, no, no. I just, no. I just, you've been there many more times than I have, so uh, you've always got these little snippets of information. But no. uh, we're going to leave the cemetery now. We're going to cross over the road. We're going to go past the civilian cemetery, a very typical, again, civilian cemetery. I always note the how 
how um, untidy the civilian cemeteries often look compared to the neat military cemeteries because, of course, different families over many centuries burying graves there. And, of course, an original cemetery because the cemetery was not destroyed during the war, as many in the Somme and uh, in the Ypres Salient are. So we're going to walk past the cemetery. We're going to go down a farm track. We're going to keep walking, and then we're going to join a, a road, carry on, and eventually we're going to come to a little house and nothing particularly interesting about this little farmhouse. It just sits sort of alone on the side of the road. But next to it is a huge hole in the ground, a huge dip. It looks like a crater. It looks like where ground's been excavated. And it actually is. It's a quarry. And as in many parts of, of France, the, it's a chalk quarry where they've dug into the ground. In this, in this part of France, it was quite common. Before the war, they dig into the ground to excavate the chalk. And there's this huge quarry beside the little house. And... Again, this was something that I was quite proud of in my book, Walking with the Anzacs, that I um, pointed out was still there because uh, other things that I'd read said that this quarry, which features quite prominently in the story, had long since vanished. But I was very happy to see it still there beside this little house. Uh, and there's a hell of a story about what went on in this little quarry, wasn't there, Pete? Uh, there is indeed. And uh, these little quarries are, are all over uh, the battlefields of the Somme and all the way here to uh, to the village of, of Montbahan. They're, they're everywhere because the, the, the chalk was used. These are chalk quarries. The, the landscape is still chalk here beneath the surface of the soil. And it's not far beneath the surface. It's very handy for digging into. So chalks be- uh, quarries became a, a handy place to start your digging if you wanted to go underground. And when I said the Germans didn't have very many defensive positions, they certainly had shelters that they'd built here. And so uh, there were places where the Germans could go underground one of the easiest places is in a quarry that already exists because you can cut into the sides of it and so this was a strong point and the one thing you notice here very much as we are doing and there's a linkage here the germans are short of men as well we are short of men as well so what do we both do to enhance that fact that we're short of men to help us we gather together more machine guns and so there are many, many more machine guns at this period than what you would have normally expected, and certainly what you would have ever seen in 1916 on both sides. And so the Germans here, literally almost ringing the quarry with machine guns, and we have to take it. What I should also add is we're going back in time slightly here, so the fighting we've just been talking about around the cemetery, we're now heading towards our own uh, our front, uh, front line for the attack, and this is where that took place, and so this is where we are now we're looking we're looking at a little bit back in time this is one of the first objectives to take this quarry there's a fascinating story here a man called george ingram led an attack here so it was b company of the 24th battalion that was coming up against this this quarry and getting held out but as you say just the huge volume of machine gun fire it's one of those interesting things isn't it? as you said is that that as they they lost men but they still had equipment so the, the few they had fewer men but uh, but more uh, more guns to arm them with so just so many machine guns and basically the whole company was being held up, but George Ingram ran forward, uh, leapt into the quarry, killed a lot of the Germans and forced the rest to surrender. And just the statistics, he captured 60 men in the quarry, killed several, captured 60, but also captured 40 machine guns in the one quarry. So there was a machine gun to every one and a half men in the quarry. Absolutely. Extra- How in the hell did they manage to advance against 40 machine guns? I'll never understand. But maybe that's why you needed just one man to take them all on. But George Ingram in... It was he was awarded the Victoria Cross for this action, unsurprisingly. But in terms of returns, one of the greatest returns of any Victoria Cross action, one of the most extraordinary Victoria Crosses of the war, was was the last one awarded um, for an Australian anyway. So 60 men captured with 40 machine guns. And after the quarry, uh, Ingram then went on alone, reconnoitred the house. He burst into a cellar, killed another machine gun crew, and then called for his men to come on and basically captured effectively the objective for the for the entire company he, he captured single-handedly. So an extraordinary man and um, wonderful that that quarry is still there. It's just such a great link with history. And you can see it so clearly. You can see how the Germans would have lined that quarry. You can see the, the field of fire they had towards the Australians on their start line. Just an extraordinary spot all around, Pete. I think what's interesting when we talk about uh, the Germans here, uh, they appear to be kind of being captured fairly easily. Now, I'm not demeaning his uh, his his effort and what he did in any way, but that was one of the big issues uh, that you had here, or big problems, mm-hmm. is that Sometimes the Germans were really running out of steam. They knew that the end were, were, was here uh, and uh, and was not far away. There was no way they were going to uh, to win the war. They were being forced back. It was just really, a, could, could I survive the war? And some of them believed that the best way to survive the war was to stick your hands up as soon as anybody came near you. 
but others did not, and they would fight to the last man. And I suppose one of the things we should remember about the, the village itself is that uh, a few days prior to this attack taking place, um, it had been attacked by the 46th Division, a British division, who had managed to get into the village and then were forced out of it. So not all the Germans, by any means, were just sticking their hands up and, uh, and surrendering as soon as anybody came near them. And that, I think, for a lot of the men, was the problem. As you turned each corner, as you went from house to house as they're clearing houses, you really didn't know whether the Germans there were going to seriously put up any resistance or they were going to fight to the last man. And so it made it very difficult, I think, for the men here in this town fighting because you knew that the Germans could surrender but would they uh, would they would they fight on George Ingram was an interesting bloke and uh, as we said the last Victoria cross awarded to an Australian during the war and um, in- interestingly Ingram um, married quite late and his wife was considerably younger than than he was and she only died relatively recently so we had this incredible connection with the first world war because of Ingram and his wife um, until only, uh, like, uh, within the last 10 years, I believe, she died. And she was a, uh, she attended services at the War Memorial in Canberra, and she, she really rep- represented that entire generation. So not only a woman who was married to a First World War veteran, but uh, a Victoria Cross winner from the First World War. So just extraordinary. It's the thing I say about history all the time, Pete, is that there are still links with the, these events that we think are so long in the past. So this is over a century ago, yet... Only 10 or 20 years ago, we would have been able to, to to chat with a lady who could have told you all of these stories that her husband told her. And I still say that as well. I say there are people alive today who spoke to veterans of the American Civil War in the 1860s. So we still have a link with the American Civil War. We can, we can find people, obviously very old these days, but who spoke to their grandfather or their great uncle, and he would have told them stories when they were young about what it was like to fight in the American Civil War. So I love that there's still these links to history, even as, t- as time goes on, and George Ingram's a great example of that. Yeah, I agree, and I love that as well. And it is, it makes history interesting. It makes it even more interesting when you're guiding people and you have these funny glitches in history where you're talking to somebody and you're seeing your grandfather and he's going, no, my father. And I forget, and later I'm going, your grandfather, no, my father. Uh, because, again, of these these issues connected with, with ages. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it adds to the experience, I think. So we're going to leave the quarry now, the little farmhouse. We're going to walk down a farm track heading out of the village now. And as you say, we're, we're kind of going back in time now. We're, we're crossing the ground now that the Australians covered in the early part of the advance. We're actually heading towards their start line now. And it was in this area as we walked down the track that uh, where the, the tank was, where, uh, where Fletcher was killed next to the tank, was down here, uh, very close to the start line. And then his body was carried up and buried in Calvair Cemetery after the, after the attack. But we're now heading down the ground that was covered in the early stages of the advance. Of the advance. And eventually we're going to come to, it's a bit odd, it's like a raised track. It's a. It's obviously a track for walking and probably occasionally horses go along here. It just looks like a, a track, but it's raised on a high embankment. And it's a little bit odd when you look at it until you realise it's the remains of the old railway line. And before the First World War, there were rail tracks crisscrossing the landscape. And then after the after the First World War, or sometime late in the decades that followed, the, they became untenable to keep these railways going everywhere. And a lot of them were torn out. And today you see them all across the Western Front. Usually they're just like this. They're walking tracks now. Um, but this was a, a prominent feature of the battle. And it's, it's great that it's still there, Pete, because we have this not only a landmark, but we also have a path that we can walk along uh, and cross the ground that the Australians crossed during the attack. I'm going to go off on one of my famous tangents. Um, the, these are called the Chemin de Fer, uh, the, the Iron Road, uh, effectively. So they were a light railway network, not as light as uh, as we see in the war being used, very light railway lines. These are, are lighter than the main line. Um, and they crisscrossed the whole of, uh, of France, effectively, and it's because the roads weren't good enough. And also, there weren't vehicles capable of carrying the amount of, uh, of goods that a rail line could do. So the railway was the way that you got about the uh, rural France. Now, interesting, it is the development within the Great War of the lorry which, after the war, will kill these railways because these railways were built again. They were rebuilt as we rebuild France from its devastation. A lot of these railway lines were put back, but their lifespan is limited to to 20 years at the most. Uh, Just on the cusp of the Second World War, they have mainly gone and they've been replaced by lorries because that development of the lorry, one of the forgotten things that is developed during the Great War, it actually sees the end of the railways or the light railways in France. Well, this as we walk along the track now, we're going to turn left and walk along the the path and walk along the top of the embankment. So the Australians were actually sheltering behind this embankment. This is the start line for the attack. And 
there's a notable group of men that were sheltered here that I will be surprised if we don't discuss them in other podcasts as well, Pete, because they're 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 so well known. But this is a this is a a company of the twenty first battalion. Uh, and this is called the Brewery Company, and basically this was because the um, this company of the twenty first battalion uh, was was billeted in a, a brewery in the village of Queru in the Somme uh, during nineteen eighteen. And Charles Bean, the official historian who later founded the Australian War Memorial, he spent a lot of time with this company in the brewery. And there's a there's a fascinating account. I won't read it now, but but please look it up if you're listening to this podcast in. The, the volume of, that deals with 1918 is a fascinating account of just the life of a, an Australian company just in the downtime at their billet. And Bean talks about he was just looking out a window and, and watching the men as they woke up in the morning and got their breakfast and, and went up to the cooker and got their bits of bacon and just laughed and joked. And it's a fascinating account of men just in the downtime in a billet, something we don't normally talk about. We talk a lot about them when they're in battle, but we don't talk a lot about them in the downtime. And it just paints a fascinating picture of these men. And that was the brewery company of the 21st Battalion. And where we're walking down the railway line was where they began their attack from. And as they were lying there waiting to begin the attack, shell fire came in. And one of their uh, one of their brave leaders, a bloke called Sullivan, um, was, was sadly killed. And Captain Sullivan had achieved so much James Sullivan his name was he'd achieved so much and he was killed in that very early bombardment behind the railway line uh, just as they started to advance so again he'd been a long time there I I can't recall if he was a Gallipoli veteran but he'd certainly been in there a long time enlisted and promoted from the ranks and that was a huge loss to the men when Sullivan was killed in this attack on Montbrahan very early on yes he had fought at Gallipoli he was uh, he was um, recommended for a military medal there Um, uh, and he didn't get it, but uh, eventually he will actually have the MC and bar and the military medal. He'll be awarded the military medal later on. So he's one of those oddities that uh, is awarded effectively the almost the same medal you could say three times because the MM is is the the rankers medal, the MC at the same level is the officers medal, and he he'd been awarded the MM, the MC, and the bar. So in other words, the MC twice. So so ex- uh, exceedingly. Uh, a brave uh, uh, man and uh, obviously a, a very a very good fighter and sadly just killed in the, in the shell fire there i'm just going to just reiterate on something you said i think the 21st battalion is is interesting and i think charles bean was interested in them because certainly during the uh, uh, the fighting at mont saint quentin uh, the 21st battalion had actually had embedded photographers with it as well as watched during its attack at mont saint quentin by charles bean so i think charles bean had probably spent quite a bit of time with the 20 21st Battalion. The other thing I should actually mention is just prior to this, they had actually mutinied. They were one of the battalions that mutinied, not because they wanted to go home. It's because they didn't want to be bata- uh, disbanded. So prior to this this attack, I can't remember the exact date. I'm just seeing if I had it in my notes somewhere. But at some period anyway, prior to the, this attack, the 21st Battalion ha- had mutinied, but only because it didn't want to be disbanded. And actually, um, Monash uh, back down and uh, the 21st battalion was not disbanded obviously not because it's taking place in this action but after this action it, it will be disbanded it's also interesting that james sullivan as you said was awarded the military cross and the military medal um and you would think so to in order to do that you had to start as an enlisted man yeah, exactly. as, a, as a private or, a, or, or, or a, you know below the rank of an officer anyway as a corporal or a sergeant to be awarded the military medal because it's only for enlisted men and therefore, to win the military cross, which is only for officers, it means you have to obviously be promoted to be an officer yep. and be commissioned, commissioned in the field yep. and become an officer. Um, so you would think that it would be unusual for too many men to have received both the military medal and the military cross to have to go through that whole process and win several bravery awards in effect. I mean, this statistic is often put forward as he's he's one of a select group of men that received both the military medal and the military cross. But in reality, 96 Australians during the First World War... <laughs> achieved the same feat, rewarded a military medal as an enlisted man, then promoted and won the military cross as an officer. Absolutely, 96. I would have thought the number would be about three. But 96 Australians received both awards during the course of the war. Just extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And uh, I suspect if you went into most of the empires of the uh, uh, forces, you'd find find similar kind of, kind of rates. It's something that went on. And, of course, 
as the war went on, it became more common because there was a need for officers and the officers that were coming straight in from, from the cadet battalions, officer cadets from universities are not there any longer. And so they're having to promote more and more often from the ranks. And of course, if you'd been uh, serving for any length of time as a ranker, then, uh, you, and you're the right type of stuff, I suppose, that's going to be, they're going to be looking at, then you're probably going to have, or you're, you're likely to have some kind of bravery award. So, so it's uh, yeah, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating aspect the promotion of men uh, during uh, during the war, and I always like it because you can learn that straight away for that very reason. If you see an officer who's awarded the military medal on his headstone, sadly for one of those that died, then straight away, without doing any kind of research whatsoever, you know that he started uh, life in the ranks and was uh, was commissioned while he was uh, he was serving. Just an amazing story. They're, they're, they're always the great stories of the war, the, the men that, that started as privates and, and went on to lead companies and become officers and some of them incredible promotions they received and became colonels and, and did incredible things. But uh, amazing, amazing stories. Some of my favourites of the war. As we uh, travel along now, we're going to go... Something that demonstrates this was once a railway line is we're going to go past a set of silos, grain silos, beside the beside what is now a path, but was the railway track and something recognisable to every Australian who comes past. They're quite Australian-looking, these, these tall grain silos as we go past. Then we're going to come to a road and we're going to turn left onto the road. This is... Um, this is the road from the village of Ramakor that leads to Mont Brahan. And again, this as we turn left onto this road, we're going to walk now back towards the village of Mont Brahan. And as we walk on this road again, we're walking in the footsteps of the Australians who advanced up a, a small slope. It's a little bit of a hill as we walk up towards the village. And this was the way the Australians advanced uh, along this along this road. So the 21st uh, and the 2nd Pioneers on the right and the 24th Battalion on the left as we as we advance up uh, up along this road. Uh, and uh, we're going to, as we walk up, Eventually, again, we're going to come to another quarry, and once again, a quarry that that was used by the Germans for defence during the First World War. There were formerly two quarries during the during the attack. There was a quarry on each side of the road, uh, but now uh, there's only one uh, just uh, just on the on the on the left of the road. Uh, but again, um, typical thing: the Australians arrived, Germans are opening fire with machine guns. The Australians had to use Lewis guns to cover the advance and then advance and then charge and, and capture the uh, the quarry with rushes once again just a fairly standard pattern of of attack pete it is indeed and uh, what we're also going to get uh, have here is um, we're going to come under artillery fire as well. It's one of the things we forget about, the big killer of the Great War. So we've been talking about machine guns and uh, capturing enormous numbers of German machine guns. But of course, firing over the heads of all these machine guns, uh, we have artillery pieces. And uh, certainly in this area, because the, ro- the the land is slightly rising as we move forward, then it was ideal for uh, German 77 millimeters to be firing over the head of their own infantry and protecting them. So we were taking casualties uh, here from the artillery fire as well. We're going to continue on now as we go uh, back to the railway track. We're continuing along now, the former railway track, and we're walking uh, now along that again, uh, the, the walking path. Um, and as we go along, there's another quarry uh, that we come past as we walk along. Again, probably used by the Germans for defence, but there's no record of fighting to actually capture this one. Uh, but as we go across, we just, we're just going to glance the field on our right, Pete. This is something, again, that uh, that I think is just one of those exciting little notes that uh, that you may otherwise overlook. There's an empty field here now. There's 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 nothing to be seen. But but during the war, there was an embankment. There was a there was a branch in the railway line, and another embankment ran out across this field. And this is one of the great stories that is one of the great I would call it the un- greatest one of the greatest unrewarded actions of the First World War, particularly from an Australian point of view. And so this was the area where the Second Pioneers attacked. So as you said earlier on, it's it wasn't an op- usually an opportunity they had to uh, to do much. But as they came along. They, uh, they they came under fire from Germans that were sheltering behind the embankment, and there was a couple of machine gun units from the from the Sixth Machine Gun Company uh, who were attached to the Pioneers, and they were commanded by Lieutenant Norman Wilkinson. And so the the Pioneers advanced. They came under fire from these strong points, and they they alerted Wilkinson to say that that there were Germans sheltering behind the embankment. So Wilkinson just in a remarkable feat. He crept along the embankment to have a bit of a squiz to see what was going on. And extraordinarily, as he peeked over the embankment, he saw more than 100 Germans and a very large number of machine guns sheltering behind the bank. Uh, and so he hurriedly snuck back. He brought up the two machine guns that they uh, they had with him. They set them up without the Germans noticing on the flank and they opened fire uh, and they killed 30 Germans. I mean, a horrendous scene. Imagine what that must have been like for the poor Germans who were sheltering there behind the bank. Uh, they killed 30 
they wounded 50 and their fire also destroyed 14 or took out of action 14 machine guns. Uh, so just an unbelievable action and a very brave action and one that, that was responsible for helping to capture the village. Um, yet Wilkinson was not awarded any sort of bravery award for that. It was it was not noticed. Um, it's just very strange. Um it, it was well it was well recorded in the official history. Charles Bean talked all about it. Um, but as far as I can see, he wasn't even mentioned in dispatches. Quite quite unusual. I think he upset somebody. He must have done. It's because it is a, it is very... We we never know quite what goes on in some of these uh, some behind the, the scenes, but there is something a little odd here. Uh, for Charles Bean to make such a, a, an effort to make sure it's mentioned uh, within, uh, within the official histories and for him still not to be awarded anything uh, is extraordinary. What I find very interesting is the story of machine guns at this point, really. It's because the machine gun that we think about in the infantry attack is the Lewis gun and very few people realize as again in this war of movement towards the end of the war the Vickers machine gun which is normally by now almost being used in an artillery role it's firing over the men's heads and can be used for creeping barrages here we have two guns that have been detached to serve as support for an infantry battalion so they are actually back in their old role almost we've got uh, heavy machine guns with the infantry in the attack so again it's it's fascinating I, I i really wasn't aware that we were doing that again in 1918 during the 100 days but we were bringing up guns very close and uh, and advancing with the with the infantry now we have to think about that for a little bit because these guns are not light. These are heavy. And that's one of the reasons they were taken out from being infantry support and it went to the Lewis gun. But here we have two guns literally advancing with the infantry and uh, being put to fantastic use, you have to say. I'm just thinking very poor perimeter defence from the Germans. That the, It would have taken a lot of time, like a, a reasonable amount of time, to set up two Vickers machine guns uh, in a position. And for them to cause that number of casualties, you know, 80 men killed or wounded by their fire means that they must have opened up at very close range and given the Germans absolutely no notice that they were there. Um, so very poor perimeter defence from the Germans to allow that to occur, but a very brave action. The, the official history notes, I think this is probably a little bit of hyperbole, but the official history notes that one of the Germans that were captured in that uh, that advance uh, under interrogation said that had had they realised that it was Australians they were facing, they would not have fought at all at the, at the spot. Now, I, th- I think that's a little bit of chest thumping in the official history, but, you know... Interesting little anecdote. Unlike Australians to, to blow their own trumpet, isn't but it? it? But it is interesting that the Germans obviously did keep a mental record of who they were fighting and also a literal record of who they were fighting as, as a record so they knew their style of fighting. And certainly the style of fighting very often was without quarter. And so I think uh, I think that's what they're really referring to is that they knew they were going to have a tough time if they were if they were facing Australians. It is conceivable as well that uh, I assume that was a fairly lowly ranked private or something and it is conceivable that you would say that he would say jesus if i'd known it was the aussies were up against i never would have you know i would have scarpered as soon as the first shots were fired you know that that is conceivable by this stage of the war especially as you mentioned that many of the germans did not want to fight it's it's not beyond the realms of possibility for someone to say i never would have stuck around had i known who i was up against (laughs) but uh interesting little interesting little anecdote to make in the official history we're going to keep walking down the old railway track now and this was fascinating. I, I'm going to shout out to my dad here because my dad Gill, because he was with me when I did the research for this book in whenever it was. The book came out in 2007, I think. So, so in the years before that. So on one of these trips, my dad came with me. We had a wonderful time traveling across the battlefields. I think we caught up with you, Pete, for a beer. We did. In, uh, yeah, we, did. But <laughs> we had a wonderful time uh, traveling across the battlefields and visiting all these places. And we spent hours walking through Mont Brahan. And it was a little bit of a mystery because as we walked along, what firstly it took me a while to realise I was walking on the railway track, but then eventually I realised where I was. And then because this was the days before Google Earth as well and Google Maps, when you just had to basically look. You, I had the old paper maps. You'd basically just have a look at the place, then turn up and have a look around, see what was still there. And as we walked down this railway track and we headed back into the village now, which is what we're doing as we stroll along this track, I I knew that the village had not been very badly damaged. And there were very famous stories about the Australians capturing. The railway station. Oh, I know why. I know why. There's photos. And yes, well, we should tell the story. When they captured the railway station, there was a German train there stacked with beer, barrels of beer. And so it was a famous anecdote about the Australians capturing Mont Brahan. And, you know, very well-known anecdote. And I was just a bit surprised because as I strolled along this railway track, there were were houses all around me, but I couldn't see anything that looked like a railway station. And I thought, "Have, have they torn down the railway station? Was it destroyed during the Second World War? Then all of a sudden it struck me. There was a little house on the side of the road next to the embankment, and I noticed it had a very sloped 
veranda out the front. And next to it in the garden was another little, little, looked like almost like a cubby house. And I realized what I was looking at was the old railway station. And of course, once the railway track had been torn out, there's no need for a railway station anymore. Someone came along, they bought the railway station and converted it to a house. So they bricked in the veranda out the front. And that was what I was now looking at was the slope of the roof, the, the veranda, that the, the, the canopy that had uh, had faced the railway track on the platform. Uh, and the little signal box out in the uh, out in the garden. So the house on the right hand side is uh, is number one, and the street is uh, is the old railway station. Quite extraordinary. And then when I looked, the house across the road had the words "hotel" emblazoned on it. So of course, near every near every railway station was always a hotel where weary travellers could get a room for the night. And again, that's now a house as well. In fact, I think it's a pharmacy. It is. Um, yeah. That is also a uh, that is also the remains of the old hotel. So they're still there, Pete. Now being used by the local people as residences. But um, again, I was I was it was a nice little moment with my dad and I when we discovered that that the uh, that the railway station and the hotel are still there, but uh, but now completely repurposed. And I would recommend you all when you are exploring the battlefields to do exactly what Matt's described. Just use your eyes and see what you can spot. It's fascinating what you can find. It's not in any book. Um, but you'll work it out in the end. You'll work out exactly what the buildings were and what they were used for. It's uh, one of one of my great loves is exploring the battlefields and having a look for yourself. Another thing that I noted in the official history, the description of the attack on Mont Brahan, is when the Australians arrived and captured the railway station and the hotel across the road, uh, French civilians came out. So French civilians who'd been here and been occupied by the Germans for the entire war and had not seen fighting, the Germans swept through in 1914, occupied them. They'd been occupied by the Germans at this time. Now, all of a sudden, the Australians arrived and liberated the town. There were still civilians in the town as the fighting occurred, no doubt hiding in the cellars. But a bunch of French civilians appeared and hugged and cheered and, and basically threw themselves at the feet of the Australians to thank them for liberating them. And it was quite difficult for the Aussies because there was still fighting going on. They had to keep advancing through the town and they couldn't get away from the civilians. Uh, but eventually they, they shook themselves free, continued the attack. And when they'd finished capturing the town and consolidated on the far side, the, the men that had been through the railway station and the, and the houses around it came back. And uh, and the um, the women greeted them again and, and gave them coffee and milk is is one 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 recorded. So they actually sat down and had a cup of coffee with the villagers that they just liberated. Must have been an amazing time for the Australians and the French the French village villagers as well. And I think what's interesting is straight away Australians set to to help the villagers uh, because you find that uh, the, there are very few men. What were in these villages were elderly couples, women, and young children. The men had either been taken by the Germans or in fact had left prior to the the war uh, uh, get reaching them so that they'd been uh, they joined their military units of course uh, France called everybody up so they, they'd not seen their their menfolk for many many years so it must have been a, a great experience to actually see people new people and people that are supporting them in these in these villages that of course had been under the heel of the Germans uh, for the whole of the war these were captured very early on it's something we shouldn't forget either is this was something shared by British soldiers, Australians, Americans as well, uh, Canadians, everyone that was fighting on the Allied side shared this idea that the people of France deserve to be liberated. We shouldn't forget that. You know, th- there was a real feeling amongst people. Britain went to war to defend neutral Belgium and there was a very strong feeling that ran throughout the war that it was a barbaric act the Germans had committed by invading France and Belgium. And men, many men enlisted because they felt it was their duty to liberate the good people of France. And we see that time and time again. And that, that was why these moments were so important to the soldiers, is that the, it, wasn't, it wasn't simply, oh, we've got to do something about the Germans. We don't care about the local people. They cared deeply about the local people, and it was a, a driving force for them to see them liberated. So these are, these are those important moments that many soldiers would have remembered for the rest of their lives. Well, that's that's effectively our tour of Mont Brahan. It's uh, we're going to wander back into town now, and where we would have parked our car next to the town hall, and uh, that's it's 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 a typical little French village. It's not it, there's nothing extraordinary about it except for this extraordinary story. Just like so many, Pete, just the, the, we take it for granted. We drive through these little villages of just what to, just just what went on there over the years. It's uh, I mean, you must take a lot of Australians out this way, mate. It's, uh, how does how does the the village of Mont Brahan sit in your mind? Well, it's very different. It's one of my favourite places to visit because uh, just, and I don't even mean really uh, even for the battlefields, when you live uh, in the area that I live in that was so devastated during 1914-18, we don't see a great deal in any direction for quite some considerable distance that is pre-1920. 
So I always find it refreshing when you get out of these areas and actually start to see rural France uh, as it has always been without that destruction. Um, and so here we're starting to see that. Uh, yes, there was some damage, but uh, this is a village that really is on the same footprint as it has always been. I mean, the population here, about 800 people now, and I suspect it was uh, probably slightly larger just before the First World War. So it's a... It's not a small village, but it's certainly not a large village. It has a disaster that's happened in recent years, I must just tell you. The bar shut. It only had one bar in the town, and it shut, so you can't get a beer. It's terrible. <laughs> that is a disaster, the scourge of, of, of the economy. <laughs> of rural France, yeah. It's terrible, <laughs> terrible. It's reflective of my hometown of West Wylong as well. The pubs keep shutting down. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing when a, when a regional area, can't you can't get a cold beer. But um, just uh, yeah, well that 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 is a that is a problem. Um, just before we finish up, there's one thing, another thing that I, I put in my book, and I'm happy to see several people have cottoned onto this idea as well. So I'm 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 glad I'm proud that I did this. But there, there's a cemetery on the outskirts of of Montbrahan. You have to drive to. It's probably a little bit too far to walk, but it's called High High Tree Cemetery. There's a couple of other little cemeteries. There's another one called Montbrahan Cemetery in town. But High Tree Cemetery is just sort of east of the village, and. I suggested in my book that it's a good reason to go there because it's a tiny little cemetery. There's only 48 graves there. Uh, there's four Australians buried here, but only two of them could be identified, and they're both from the Pioneer Battalion there, so from the second Pioneers who attacked at Montbrahan. So it's Private Charles Bateman and Private Joseph Taylor, both of the second Pioneers. And what I say in my book and I say as well, this is a little bit of a funny thing, but it, for me it really resonates, is if you stand in front of Private Taylor's grave, you are Stan. He's the most easterly burial in the cemetery, and this is Australia's most easterly battlefield of the war. So if you stand in front of his grave, you're standing in front of the most easterly Australian to be killed on a battlefield during the war. I should say there are other Australians buried further east, but they were they died as prisoners of war and as they were being taken back to uh, prison camps. So there are Australians buried further east. But, but it's just symbolically for me, Pete, I might be getting a little bit, you know, lightheaded here, but symbolically for me, when you stand in front of that grave, the easternmost grave on Australia's easternmost battlefield of the war, this really is the end of the journey of the RAF that started at Anzac Cove at Gallipoli in 1915. It's just a nice symbolic spot. And I've I've been gratified to see that several writers in magazine articles and newspapers and, and other publications have said to do the same thing. Um, so, yeah, it's a nice spot. If you come to Montbrahan, definitely go to High Tree, stand in front of Private Taylor's grave and just think about the journey of the AAF and... I began at Gallipoli and ended here. I've gone a step further. I've actually sat down with him with a with a cup of coffee. I uh, a few years ago it was a very hot uh, late summer's uh, uh, evening and we were in the cemetery. It's a beautiful cemetery and we went to the end there. It was a little windy and we just crouched down behind the wall there. It's got a, a brick wall around it and we had a coffee with him just sitting on the on the lawn area in front of where where he, where he's buried. It's a good spot. Four years of sacrifice, 61,000 Australians who were killed and never came home. And this is a, as good a spot as any is to remember them. And so good on you. Uh, good on you, Private Joe Taylor. You're a, you're a good bloke and uh, you, you hold a special place in the history of the AAF. A couple of sites you should also visit while you're in the area. If you've come this far to the Ain to go to Montbrahan, a couple of other sites that people should certainly visit that we'll probably cover in other podcasts. But the American Cemetery, the, the Somme American Cemetery at Bonnie is not far from here, which is an absolutely extraordinary place to go and visit. Like all American cemeteries, it's wonderfully over the top and extraordinary and very seldom visited by Americans because not a lot of Americans come to the First World War battlefields. Um, but also we mentioned uh, we mentioned the story of, of Harry Fletcher and Austin Marnie. Austin Marnie, sadly, was killed in the area of Calvair Cemetery. He was killed while digging in. He was he was hit in the head and by a sniper and, and wounded and died a couple of days later. He's buried in Tincor Cemetery, which is not far away as well. And there's a lot of officers in there, and it tells a very interesting story. It's a it's a fascinating cemetery, Tincor. So I would suggest that uh, the, the American Cemetery at Bonnie and the the British Cemetery at Tincor are two sites you definitely want to visit in this area. Pete, you must have spent a fair bit of time in both of those places. Yeah, it's one of my favourites, Tincor Cemetery, because it's part of the casualty clear uh, evacuation routes back towards Peron. Um, it's got some interesting people uh, buried in that cemetery, but I've got an, a double link is that on my wall, literally uh, beside me almost where I'm talking to you from now, I have the old Imperial Wargrave sign of the cemetery when they were removed in the 60s uh, and 70s as they replaced them with the commonwealth war graves then i managed to get uh, the old uh, commonwealth war uh, the old imperial war graves uh, steel well it's cast iron cast iron sign and it's bolted to the wall in my study 
Absolutely brilliant, mate. I'm jealous of the things that you've been able to collect over the years. <laughs> and I look forward to getting back over and coming and visiting you, mate, having a cold beer and you uh, giving me a tour of the house again and uh, showing me all those wonderful things. But, mate, thank you so much. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a battlefield that's very dear to both of our hearts and I, I've been looking forward to doing this one on the podcast for a long time. So thank you for, uh, for joining me on this, on this walk and I look forward to doing it again in person. And, dear listeners, thank you for tuning in as well. It's great to be back. We're looking forward to doing more of these podcasts. We're looking forward to hopefully meeting you on the battlefields and showing you these sites in person because it's an extraordinary thing to do. Don't forget, uh, buy me a coffee forward slash Battlewalks if you want to support the podcast. Visit our websites if you want to look at uh, at tours. And also very soon we'll be launching subscriptions, um, which means that you can get extra content. If you're enjoying what we're doing, don't worry, we'll always be free. This uh, The podcast will always be free. And if you're enjoying listening to the podcast, carry on doing that for free. Um, but if you want a little bit of extra extra content if you think that the some of the tangents in particular that pete and i offer are worth hearing a bit more about we'll be offering subscriptions very very soon on apple podcasts so look out for that we'll make an announcement when that's live but thank you so much for joining us pete as always thank you for joining us it's been uh, it's been extraordinary pleasure matt A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Jim. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.